a reading from the Gospel of St. Luke. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is the kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, we want to be a people of the Advent. Uh, we want to be a people who are uh, deeply, profoundly, fundamentally transformed by the arrival of Jesus and all that he represents and the kingdom he came to establish. We want to be, we want to be a people of the Advent. Uh, we want to be a people of the kingdom of God. We want, we want to be recognizably your children. Uh, and that requires many miracles. And we ask you to perform every one of them in our lives and to do it now. So prepare us and grant us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, and uh, it's useful, it's helpful if you turn back to that second reading uh, that uh, Bracey just read for us. Thank you for that. Um, as you've heard uh, several times already in our service today, uh, we're in Advent. And Advent means, uh, it's a fancy word, it's the four weeks leading up to Christmas, but the word means arrival. Everyone say arrival. Arrival, arrival or the coming. Everybody say the coming. The coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. Now, um, the main thing, of course, that we, the most obvious thing that we recall is the arrival of Jesus when Jesus was born in the manger, you know, Bethlehem, you, you know the story, story of Christmas. But uh, it's also, it's not just that, it's also the arrival of Jesus's kingdom. What does that mean? Well, think of it this way. Uh, one of the questions that we want to ask in Advent is, what difference does it make that Jesus arrives? Or what does it look like on the ground when Jesus arrives? What difference does he make? What difference does he make in my life and in your life? And what kind of community is he trying to build? We want to be a people who have been deeply transformed by the arrival of Jesus. Well, what does that look like to be a people 
who have so internalized the arrival of Jesus that it really, after all, makes a difference. And that's one of the reasons we're reading this portion of the Gospel of Luke, because this portion of the Gospel of Luke describes some of the ethics, the, the, the morality, the, the, what, it, what it looks like to be a people who have internalized the arrival of Jesus. And here's what we need to wrestle with today, friends. If you want to know what it looks like to deeply internalize the arrival of Jesus, you need to wrestle with loving your enemies. To be a people who have internalized Advent means to be a people who love those whom we have good reason to hate. And that is a safe concept as long as we keep it very abstract and we don't let it touch our lives. But the minute you let it touch your life, it's going to get really, really difficult. Let me try to explain why it's difficult. It's, this is going to be a difficult... Everybody breathe. Okay, it's going to get worse. This is going to be difficult because... Uh, if you and I are going to wrestle with this text, we are going to have to re reckon with the reservoirs of resentment that are lurker, lurking about in our souls. Now, I can hear somebody say, reservoirs of resentment? What? I don't, what do you mean? I'm a good person. I don't do that. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Uh, can you think of anyone in your life whom you have good reason to resent? Do a thought experiment with me. Uh, imagine you're 15 years old, you're at your home, wherever you grew up with, and it's dinner time. And maybe you're all seated around the table. Or maybe you never sat around the table with your family. But imagine that space, or whatever was happening at that moment, and look around the table, or think about all the people who were not at that table. Ask yourself, are there, is there anybody at that table, or not at that table? that you have good reason to resent. Uh, think about the words that were spoken, and think about the words that were weaponized against you. Or think about the silence, the deafening silence, the, the words that you needed to hear that were never said. Can you think of someone whom you have good reason to resent? And maybe it's not your family, maybe it's not the dinner table when you were 15 years old, but maybe, maybe it's some, something at work. Uh, maybe it's that jerk who treated you in such a way that, you know what, you, you, have, you, you can sue the guy. Or maybe it's, um, uh, maybe it's somebody at school, maybe it's, maybe it's your pastor. Or maybe... The people whom you have good reason to resent are the people, the political tribe you're desperately frightened is going to make it into power. Who is it that you have good reason to resent? You're going to have to wrestle with those reservoirs of resentment if you're going to listen and hear this text. Because it's when we recognize those reservoirs of resentment that we start to see who our enemies might be. And one of the reasons, one of the ways you know that you're starting to recognize your enemy is when you realize that person 
whom you have good reason to resent, and there's something that recoils inside you, and you say, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. You mean I'm supposed to offer the other cheek to that person? Verse 29 in our reading. No way. That's unreasonable. It's ridiculous. And then if you find yourself recoiling and looking back at the text, looking for loopholes and hoping for hyperbole, that's when you know uh, you're really ready to do some business. Okay, everybody breathe again. Do you see the difficulty? But here's the deal. We need to wade into the difficulty, and here's why. When you are wrestling with Scripture and you reach that pain line, that's the moment when Advent can stop being sentimental and start actually becoming revolutionary in your life. That's the moment when you'll see the need and you'll know the hope of what it is for Jesus to arrive in that particular part of your soul. So that's what we're going for today. You ready? Let's get into the reading. Take a look at verse 27. Uh, Jesus is speaking here. He's describing what uh, it's like to be his disciple. And, and he says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, I don't know about you, but even as I read that out loud, it strikes me as, oh my goodness, Jesus, you are bafflingly radical. And it's not hard to see what he means. The difficulty of this passage is not understanding it. That's the trouble. Um, he's saying, find the person whom you have good reason to resent. Find the person who hates you, even though you don't deserve it. Find the person even who has hurt you in the past and even abused you. And that person needs to become the special object of your love. And I think that sounds crazy. In fact, I think it might sound dangerous. Can you see that? All right, let me, um, let me create a little bit of context here. So uh, if you just back up and think about um, uh, uh, status quo uh, morality and ethics, um, most human cultures will base one way or another their, their morality or their ethics uh, on some kind of mutuality or reciprocity, right? So um, I shouldn't steal from you because I really don't want you to steal from me. There's self-interest involved, right? Uh, and, and, and I maybe should give to you when you have need, partially because I know one, way, one day I might have need, and I want you to do the same to me. There's a self-interest reciprocity that's involved in a lot of the ways we think about morality and ethics. And, it, and it, everything works better when you do your bit. However, the Hebrew scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, uh, pushed ethical uh, reflection into a whole new territory. Uh, the Old Testament based ethics not just on reciprocity, but on love. And not just on any kind of love, uh, but rather on the very particular kind of love that the God of the Old Testament displays. So let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, God commands Israel, his people, uh, to love what's called the stranger. Uh, we would call them uh, immigrants or refugees, something like that. And God required Israel to love these strangers who were not part of their tribe. 
Now, why should they do that? Why, should, why love the stranger? Because, you know, immigrants, refugees, they can often be a drain on society, or at least that's the perception. Um, it might not be in Israel's self-interest to love the stranger. Why does God want them to love the stranger? Well, you can go read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. But the reason is God wants Israel to love the stranger in their midst because that's what God's like. And God wants Israel to reflect him. Uh, God, as he presents himself in the Old Testament, is God's love is not governed primarily by reciprocity. So in the story of the Old Testament, God shows his love for Israel when God rescues Israel from enslavement in Egypt. And that's really important because God loves Israel when Israel is a stranger. And God loves Israel, I mean, they're enslaved. They, they can't do any, they have no benefit to God. Um, Israel couldn't res, reciprocate something to God. God didn't get anything particularly out of it. God's love is not angling for something to kind of, because he has some need. God loves preemptively. He loves before there's anything particularly provoking him to love. It comes straight out of who he is, out of the overflow of his generosity. And so when God loved Israel and rescued them, he sat down with Israel and he says, I want you to love like I love. And this is going to be new in the history of humans. I want you to love before there's something in the other that provokes you to love them. I want you to, for instance, love the stranger like I have loved you. And again, part of, the issue, part of the point is God wanted Israel to love in such a way that it would become clear to the world around them that a unique God has stepped into this world, that a unique God had advented, arrived, broken in, and the rules were changing. Now keep that in your mind and come back to Jesus. Because now Jesus is taking that and he is pressing it, pressing it to an unprecedented extreme. He says, if you're going to follow me, I, I want you not only to love those who do you good, and I want you not only to love those who don't really benefit you, I want you to love even those who have done you harm. And that's the point where I want to throw, I don't know, a, a yellow flag or a yellow card, I guess, this week, is it? Um, I, I don't that was me saying something I don't know anything about. Um, <clears throat> Bracey's going to come after me later. Um, but in any event, you know what I mean. Um, because there's part of me that wants to say, no, 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 wait, wait. Seriously, you want me to love somebody who has done me harm? Uh, no, 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 no. That is dangerous. That is extremist. That has the risk of uh, perpetuating evil and wickedness and injustice. In fact, if you put that, oh, if you put that burden on victims, uh, you will coerce victims into tolerating abuse and wickedness and injustice and evil. Can you see it? And that's an important injection. And it actually gets more acute if you look at verse 29. Jesus says, if someone hits you on one side, Turn the other cheek too. Oh, how, how do you navigate that? Let me tell you a story. Um, 1961, uh, the civil rights movement um, 
some of the organizations were uh, conducting protests and direct action in order to desegregate uh, a town called Albany, um, not New York, but Georgia. And in uh, Albany, Georgia, the chief of police was a man called uh, Laurie Pritchett. And uh, he responded to these protests, to this direct action, by jailing just vast numbers of protesters. And he had particular uh, um, uh, strategies to be able to uh, fill the jails, but then have overflow so that um, uh, the, the jailing system didn't get overwhelmed and he could just jail vast numbers. And one day, uh, he was talking to a civil rights leader who was in jail. And while he was talking to the civil rights leader, he was handed a message. And uh, the, the civil rights leader was looking at Pritchett's face as Pritchett read the message, and he could tell that something was wrong. And so the civil rights leader said, uh, Chief, is, there, is, is, there some, is everything okay? And uh, Pritchett began to speak, and he began to explain that because of all the protests and all the direct action and the, um, everything that was happening, he hadn't been home to see his family in literally weeks. And the message he had just arrived was a message from his wife reminding him that that was their anniversary. Now, if I had been the guy behind bars, I would have said, well, cry me a river, because I haven't seen my family in a long time, too. Yeah? And that would have been like, yes, you with me? Do you know what he said? He said this. You go home and take your wife to dinner tonight. Nothing will happen in Albany, Georgia tonight or today. And in the morning at 8 o'clock, you and I will take up where we've left off. Now, that civil rights leader was Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and Martin Luther King Jr., do you agree? He was not going soft. Uh, he was not compromising with injustice at that moment. But he was turning the other cheek. He was loving this man, not because he deserved it, but even though he didn't. And it made an impact on Pritchett, because the only reason we know this story, the only account of it that we have, is from Pritchett himself. It made an impact on the man. And this is very important, friends. Loving people whom you have good reason to resent does not mean propping up or tolerating either injustice or abuse or whatever other kind of wickedness. Jesus never puts up with it, friends. And neither must his people. But on the other hand, the ability to love your enemies, to love in creative ways people whom you have good reason to resent, is one of the most powerful ways to tear down evil and injustice. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do now. Or think of it the other way around. If we only ever love people who love us, and if we only uh, love people who love us back, what will happen is we will end up propping up the status quo. I get that from verse 32. He says this, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. 
And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. See, friends, everybody loves those who love them, right? That's old-fashioned reciprocity. And that sort of love is reasonable, and it makes sense, and it's moderate, and it's sensible, but it does not change the world. Even a tyrant will kiss their kid. But it, that, that's just propping up the status quo. But it's actually darker than that. Think back to those uh, hidden reservoirs of resentment in your life and mine. Those reservoirs of resentment are very dangerous. Um, and they're dangerous because hate spawns in those reservoirs. You see, when, when somebody perpetrates evil against me, that hurt and that wickedness, it pierces me and it wounds me. And if I am not very careful, it, that evil will settle down and collect in those reservoirs of resentment, and there it'll begin to replicate. It will begin to spawn, and it'll spawn hatred. And if I'm not very careful, that newly spawned hatred will lash out at me at someone else and it will pierce their lives and it will begin to replicate within them and on it goes. And I will become a perpetrator of the very evil that I loathe in another. And all the while, while that's happening, I can reassure myself because I can probably find somebody that I love, somebody who has loved me, and I can say, I love people. I love people who deserve it. And that's how a status quo kind of love can beget a world of hate. And that's why we so desperately need the advent of a new kind of love. Verse 35, Jesus says, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will become sons of the Most High. Note that. Sons of the Most High. For he is kind in, uh, to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, then, as your Father is merciful. Now, note that sons of the Most High... Loving enemies is the indicator that one is actually a child of God. Remember Israel? Israel was to love the stranger because that was a reflection of God's character. And the same is here. When we love our enemies, it shows that we are children of the God who's really there, the God who has advented into this world. It shows that we're chips off the old block. Loving people whom we might otherwise have good reason to hate is the family trait of God's people. And you can push it further. When we love those whom we have good reason to resent, it's a signpost that God has broken in. It's a signpost that God has broken into this world to disrupt the status quo, to dismantle the evil around us, and to bring a revolution. And that's where we need to hit the pause button because we've got to ask ourselves, this is a hard question, everybody. Everybody take a deep breath. We've had to do a lot of those, haven't we? Um, do you love like this? Um, do you love your enemies? Or on the other hand, are the reservoirs of resentment about ready to spawn something ugly? 
Friends, you know what we need? Come on. Do you love like this? How can you possibly love like this? When you realize that you can't, that's when you're ready for Advent. Because we need the Advent of a new kind of love. And we need Jesus' Advent. We need Jesus to rescue us from the reservoirs of resentment within us. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Do you notice how verse 35 says the indicator of somebody being a real child of God is that they love their enemies? Well, that's one of the reasons why you can know Jesus is the real son of God. Because Jesus not only preached this, he lived it. Do you remember the night that he was betrayed? Um, Jesus knew that Peter, one of his closest friends, was going to run out on him. Jesus knew that in advance. Do you know how he responded? He prayed for Peter. In other words, verse 28, he prayed for those who abused him. And then a few hours later, Jesus was arrested. And, and in that moment, just minutes before Peter ran out on him, one of the last things Peter did is he drew his sword and he cut off the guard, the ear of one of the guards that came to arrest Jesus. Remember that? You heard that story? Uh, do you know how Jesus responded? He healed the man's ear. It's one of the last healings that Jesus, of Jesus that's ever recorded. In other words, verse 27, he did good to those who hated him. And then a few hours later when Jesus was pinned up on the cross and everybody was cursing him, how did Jesus respond? Do you remember? Remember what he said? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In other words, verse 18, he blessed those who cursed him. See, friends, Jesus loved his enemies while they were killing him. And Jesus' death was just not a tragic crime. Jesus' death was the advent of rescue. It was the advent of a new kind of love that disrupts the status quo, undermines evil, and brings forth God's kingdom. He was ransoming those whose heart spawns hate. And Jesus was dying the death that my reservoirs of resentment deserve. And what that means is that when you and I look at the cross, we can realize that Jesus died not only for his enemies in that moment, but he died for me as one of his enemies. Jesus loved you to the point of death. And you got to see how that changes things. Because what that means, friends, you're never going to be able to extend the love with you, which you have not first received. The love of Christ must advent to you. And when you realize that Jesus died for you when you were his enemy, that undeserved love starts penetrating down into your soul even deeper than what your wounds have penetrated. It will penetrate down into those reservoirs of resentment and it'll make the ugly water pure. It will penetrate down it to where hate spawns, and it'll turn it into pure water. It'll turn those reservoirs of resentment into reservoirs of revolutionary kind of love. That's how transformation happens. And so, Emmanuel, I want to ask not merely, do you love your enemies? Because I know we don't, not naturally. I want to know what comes to your mind when you think of the cross of Christ. 
what it comes to your mind when you think of the advent of Jesus and has Jesus advented into your reservoirs of resentment yet because that's what he wants to do. And he wants to do that today. And when you find that Jesus has advented into your reservoirs of resentment, you will find a kind and gracious Savior with a healing hand who looks at your wounds and says, I've got a better cure. I've got a better cure than your resentment. And I've loved you, and my love will overwhelm your pain and will give you an eternity of restoration. And not only will I do that, I will make you into an instrument of my love to others. And I will make you an instrument of my healing in the lives of others, and maybe even those whom you have good reason to resent. And then you will be a signpost of a God who has come among us. So Emmanuel, that's what Jesus wants to do this Advent. He wants to do that in you. And I know this brings up so many questions. How do you do it? I mean, how do you do it? And there's a lot of things to say there. But it starts when the cross of Christ is big upon your soul. So start there. And the Lord will lead us on. And the Lord will teach us at the foot of the cross what it looks like to pray for our enemies. I don't want you to think that this means you need to go out and put yourself in a position where you're likely to be abused or wounded. Don't, don't hear me saying that. Very often, we love our enemies by praying for them and from a distance. But the Lord does want to teach us what it looks like to be set free from those reservoirs of resentment. That's where the Lord wants to take us. Amen? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.